Good evening. I am glad to be here with you. My name is Amy Catterson, and I'm looking forward to considering Exodus 5 and 6 with you. So let's begin with prayer. Father, we acknowledge that so often our eyes do scan our circumstances and puzzle at your ways. And I pray, Father, that as we consider your word tonight, you would grant us an anchor for their soul, that we would not be blown off course when circumstances are difficult, but we would lock eyes on you and know that our hope is steadfast. Would you come and help us now, Father? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Exodus 5 could be considered the beginning of action after four chapters of setting the stage. Exodus chapter 1 rehearsed how God's people came to be in Egypt. Seventy persons that have grown to perhaps two million people under God's hand of blessing. And yet they have also grown to be a persecuted and enslaved people. They are even subjected to ruthless nationwide genocide of their baby boys. Chapter 2 brings a new character on the scene, Moses, who is the beautiful child of Hebrew slaves, miraculously preserved and raised in the household of Pharaoh's daughter. When he comes to adulthood, Moses sees the affliction of his people, the Israelites, and stages a small one-man deliverance, which does not effect much salvation. Then he flees to Midian for 40 years. Back in Egypt, that means 40 more years of suffering, waiting, and crying for God's people. And yet he is not distant or distracted. God sees and hears them. Chapter 3 unveils the plan of God for his people's deliverance. God speaks to Moses from the burning bush and reveals himself as Yahweh, I am who I am, the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God who promises his people rescue and rest in a new good home. Moses repeatedly doubts and balks at the call of God, but in chapter 4, the Lord provides him with miraculous signs to perform. And in light of Moses' continued doubts, he grants Brother Aaron to be Moses' mouthpiece. When at last the brothers meet with the leaders and people of Israel and reveal God's signs and plan, the people respond with worship and faith. As the curtain rises on Exodus 5, we sense the anticipation and expectation of the people. God has heard. God has seen. God has sent a deliverer. Let the rescue begin. So let's read, beginning in Exodus 5, verses 1 through 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not loathe the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. 
Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with a sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. Here we have Moses and Aaron's first approach to Pharaoh, and they are summarily dismissed. Pharaoh offers a threefold response of unbelief with a conspicuous use of the royal I. Listen for that I. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? I do not know the Lord. I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh, who was regarded as a god himself, is thoroughly unimpressed by the claims that another supposed deity is making on his workforce, and he flatly refuses. Moses and Aaron give a second attempt, but Pharaoh scoffs at them, rebuffs them, and dismisses them and the people back to their burdens, like beasts fit for nothing more than mindless labor. One may hardly imagine a more thorough denial of God's call. But wait, it gets worse. Verses 6 through 9. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore, they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Pharaoh diagnoses the motive of the Israelites' request as laziness, and he retaliates with a swift and devastating command, no more straw. Perhaps there was a bit of mockery as he mimicked the phrasing of Moses' request in his command. You want me to let the people go? Sure, let them go and gather straw for themselves and see how they like that taste of freedom. Verses 10 through 23. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, 
Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants. Yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Here we see the cascading effects of Pharaoh's response. The Egyptian taskmasters and the Hebrew foremen relay the command and the people have two days of futilely attempting to carry out Pharaoh's order. Very predictably, they fail to meet the pre-existing quotas, and the foremen are given physical retribution for their shortfall. At this point, we see that the people's trust in God that we read about at the end of chapter 4 has disintegrated. To whom do they cry? The foremen come and cry to Pharaoh, not the Lord. But Pharaoh has no compassion on them and turns them back to their hopeless assignment. Leaving Pharaoh, they meet Moses and Aaron with accusative words, in effect calling the Lord to curse Moses and Aaron for their desperate condition. If Moses' youthful one-man effort to save his people was considered unsuccessful, this attempt has been so wildly catastrophic that they consider him complicit in their murder by putting a sword in the Egyptian's hand to kill them. How does Moses respond? Does he maintain trust in the Lord? Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Moses doesn't call God by his covenant name, Yahweh, here. He accuses God of doing evil. He assigns to God the responsibility for Pharaoh's doing evil to the people, and he waves a finger in God's face, calling him a liar because he has not delivered his people emphatically at all if the people are desperate Moses is despairing in the darkness of this moment every one of them is lashing out in anger and accusation for the disappointment of these hard circumstances God has been slandered and disbelieved in the most blatant way we might hold our breath for the bolt of lightning in judgment in response. Let's read Exodus 6, 1 through 8. And notice how this begins with perhaps the
the most beautiful phrase in scripture, but the Lord. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. God's response to the doubts and despair of his people and Moses begins with an orientation of sight. Now you shall see. He reiterates his plan in verse one that he personally will ensure not only their exit from the land, but Pharaoh's eager enforced obedience to God's command. That phrase for he will send them out is the same verb used in the command let my people go, that will be repeated in the coming chapters. Like a willful toddler in the care of a strong parent, Pharaoh most certainly will comply in the end. Next, God provides a rich reminder of who he is. Three times in this message, he asserts, I am the Lord. And as you're aware, when something in the Bible appears in triplicate, it is as though God wants those words to be underlined, bolded, with three exclamation points at the end. God tells Moses that he appeared to the patriarchs primarily in the context of his name, God Almighty. You may observe that the name Yahweh does appear at times in the narrative of Genesis, but these encounters in Exodus are deepening, unpacking, and enriching the way that God's people know him. This is a primary theme in Exodus, growing knowledge of the Lord. See the contrast between verse 3, by my name the Lord, I did not make myself known to them, and verse 7, you shall know that I am the Lord, Yahweh, your God. 
Two aspects of this name will really shine in the unfolding Exodus story. God's divine freedom to do exactly what he chooses to do and his unwavering presence with Moses and Israel. In verses four and five, God reminds Moses of his covenant made with the patriarchs. And then he calls Moses to reiterate his promise to the people of Israel in verses six through eight. Listen for God's divine eye in this list, which stands in contrast to Pharaoh's little royal eye earlier. I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God. I will bring you into the land. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Isn't that a beautiful flood of promises that Moses is to relay to the people? And Moses obeys. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. God's people have allowed their circumstances to turn them as unresponsive and unlistening to God's words as Pharaoh was. Now we come to a doubting sandwich in the remainder of the chapter. It flows like this. Verses 10 through 13, God's charge to Moses and Aaron and Moses' response of doubt. Verses 14 through 27, genealogy establishing the ancestry of Moses and Aaron. Verses 28 through 30, God's charge to Moses and Moses' response of doubt. I'll read through this whole section, and then we'll think about the genealogy in the middle briefly, and then look at the repeated section that comes before and after that. You may uh, want to turn to page 113 in your workbook while we read through the genealogy so that you can trace the names on the chart as we go. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. These are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shal, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel, 
the years of the life of Kohath being 133 years, the sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. The sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzaphan, and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife Elisheba, the daughter of Aminadab, and the sister of Nashon. And she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the clans of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Pudiel, and she bore him Phineas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? So the center of this section gives us a limited genealogy from the era of Israel's first coming to Egypt, naming the first three sons of Jacob, who's called Israel here, and then tracing highlights of the generations of Levi to the current day, and then somewhat beyond this point in the story of Israel. Essentially, we are given the history or ancestry of Moses and Aaron, as verses 26 and 27 reiterate. And we are also given some foreshadowing of the significant characters who will come on the scene in the days ahead, such as the sons of Aaron, who will become priests, and his grandson Phineas, who will uphold the holiness of the Lord in the episode of Baal of Peor in um, Numbers chapter 25. Here are just three points that we can draw from this genealogy, although there are more. God gave his promise to Jacob, and he is keeping it, child by child, generation by generation, right on through the trying circumstances of his people at this present moment. Second, God not only sees his people, he knows their names, their families, and their futures. The author of this story is impeccably attentive to every detail. And third, God has chosen certain instruments among his people to fill a special role. They are not special people. They are sons and fathers, sisters and mothers like the rest of the family. But when God chooses, he also enables them to do his work. Now, to look at the repeated part of this sandwich, in verses 10 through 13 and 28 through 30, God instructs Aaron and Moses to go back to Pharaoh with the same command. And Moses' response is doubt. The people who were initially receptive 
have rejected his words. What hope does he have to change the mind of Pharaoh? The repeated phrase, I am of uncircumcised lips, is a little obscure, but the basic meaning is plain. Moses knows that he is not a mouthpiece sufficient to accomplish the deliverance of God's people. And he is ready to close this failed mission and go back to his sheep in the wilderness. The close of chapter six is not the end of this conversation, but for the purpose of our study, this becomes a pregnant pause, a break in the action where we can step back to consider what has unfolded in these chapters. You observed in your study this week how frequently the question why appears in these chapters. And that is precisely what I want to consider as we seek to understand the main point of the author Moses, but also as we seek to understand God's ways more fully. Let's consider the situation of the people of Israel. What have they experienced to this point? They have lived in Egypt for over 400 years. They have been enslaved and put to forced labor. They've groaned, cried out for help, cried to the Lord for rescue, and their suffering deepened. Their sons were killed. And when a deliverer was appointed, their slavery actually worsened. It looked like God's plan was resulting in death, not deliverance. And consider Moses. He has had a failed attempt as a deliverer of his people as a young man. He has had a failed attempt as a deliverer of his people as an old man. Pharaoh won't listen to him. The people won't listen to him. He is in an impossible situation. Those are the circumstances of Exodus 5 and 6. But also consider what is said about or to God in these chapters. Moses and Aaron say that the Lord will fall upon his people with pestilence or with the sword if they are not released. The foremen of the people of Israel use the name of the Lord only with the force of a curse to judge Moses and Aaron. And Moses directly accuses God of doing evil to his people and failing to keep his promise to deliver them. Pharaoh asserts that he does not know the Lord, but one could argue that Moses and Aaron and all of God's people are suffering with a similar malady. They received a beautiful and powerful revelation of God and worshiped with joy just one chapter before. But as circumstances have taken a dark turn, they allow their view of God to be shadowed and distorted. We see here that they have a deeper kind of problem than simply the physical oppression of Pharaoh. If you're familiar with the continuing story of Exodus, you will realize that this doubt, fear, and forgetfulness are deeply ingrained in God's people and linger with them long after their physical slavery is over. 
they need a greater rescue than they realize. When we consider Exodus 5 and 6, we have the benefit of the rest of the story. We know that God is loving his people right here. He is delivering them from holding on to smaller gods and relying on human help. He is about to act so that every promise will be fulfilled in vibrant color and powerful action and exquisite detail. If we could whisper to Moses and God's people at this point in the story, we would urge them, fear not. Yahweh, your personal, powerful God is with you. He is good. He is faithful to his promises. He is worthy of your trust. What do we learn from these chapters? For the suffering people of God, the fight of faith is a fight for sight. Not to judge God by our circumstances, but to look at God himself when things feel hopeless. To remember his past faithfulness and hold on to his rich promises for the future. Maybe you find yourself in an Exodus 5 place today. You know that God has seen you and believe that he is strong enough to do what he says. But things seem to be getting worse instead of better. In the midst of the darkness and pain, our circumstances shout that God himself is to blame. We thought we knew him, but how could he love us and still let this happen? We thought he was going to rescue us, but things are worse than ever. So what do we do? When our circumstances seem to prove that God doesn't care and isn't doing good to us, where do we turn? To answer that question, let's consider another point where God's story held deep pain and darkness at just the point where a breakthrough was expected. For hundreds of silent years, God's people awaited the coming of his promised Messiah. At last, he revealed the arrival of the deliverer with a glorious angelic proclamation and the worship of shepherds and wise men. Yet almost immediately, the story takes a dark turn. Jesus is not received by his people. A king slaughters baby boys in an attempt to kill him. Jesus fails to provide the kind of immediate and visible liberation everyone expected, and his words and signs are met with widespread resistance and unbelief. His followers, who had hoped that he was the answer to all their prayers, fled to their homes in despair when the worst conceivable thing took place. The sun was crushed. Their hope was gone. But we know the rest of the story. The moment where the father turned his face away, it seemed that darkness had won. But that hour of darkness, when the prayers of the very son of God seemed to be denied, 
was itself the point where God's love was made manifest. Death lost its sting. The grave lost its grip then and forever after. The victory of Christ through death demonstrates God's ability to flip darkness on its head and bring resurrection hope from our bleakest pain. But even more than that, Christ's victory over death is the eternal and absolute proof that God's people dwell under the enduring love of God. Absolutely no difficulty or pain can separate us from it. Every circumstance now, even if painful, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Our deliverer has come, and our ultimate eternal rescue has been accomplished. So, my sisters, my prayer for every one of us is this, that when our circumstances are dark, we will fix our eyes on our Lord and Redeemer, trusting his promises, confident that his rescue is sure, for our rescuer has come. Let's pray. Lord, we are so often unsure how you could turn bad things in our lives for good. And yet, you have proven your love in the most unmistakable and unshakable way. So I ask for each one of us that you would fix our eyes on Jesus and let our hope be secure like an anchor for the soul, even when times are trying, for you have already accomplished our deliverance. In Jesus' name, amen.